says tech can't be human? Because a lot of people think you just have to live with it and you can't get past it. And if you believe that, then that will be your reality because your subconscious mind will believe you. It's non-judgmental, it's non-critical, whatever you believe, whatever you tell it, it's gonna believe you. I can, it believes you, I can't, it believes you. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. Too many cybersecurity assets and SaaS applications, not enough visibility, Enter Exonius. The Exonius solution correlates asset data from existing solutions to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action, giving IT and security teams the confidence to control complexity. Visit exonius.com forward slash Hacker Valley to learn more and try it out for free. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash Hacker Valley. What's going on, everybody? You're in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again with an incredible guest, a guest that is helping businesses and really focuses on the intersection between business and mindset. Our guest today is Cheryl Anjanette. Cheryl is an author international speaker, and has founded her own company, Anjanette Wellness Academy. We also have to drop your recent book, Cheryl, Imposter Lies Within, Silence Your Inner Critic, Tame Your Fear, and Unleash Your Badassery. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Yeah. We are beyond excited to talk with you about imposter syndrome. I really didn't have a name for it when I started feeling imposter syndrome. I'm sure it's pretty much the same for a lot of folks. But once you have a term for it, once you understand what it is, you can start making steps to improving it within yourself. But for everyone out there, what exactly is imposter syndrome? Yeah, Chris. I mean, for decades, I didn't know what it was either. And frankly, I did live with it for decades before I finally figured out how to get past it. But here's what it is. It's a psychological pattern. And I want to put the emphasis on the word pattern because this does become habitual where someone feels like they're not good enough in spite of their accomplishments. So despite evidence to the contrary, no matter how well we do, no matter what accolades we get, no matter how far up the corporate ladder we climb, we have that internalized angst that someone's going to figure out we're not as good as they thought we were. Some people may use the imposter word, oh, they're going to figure out I'm an imposter or I'm a fraud or I'm a phony. But even if that word doesn't resonate with you, the feeling is the same. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be exposed. What is the origin of imposter syndrome? Because, you know, when you think of this idea of being exposed and almost wanting to hide it and not share that you may feel like an imposter. Someone had to come forward and say, hey, I feel like an imposter in this industry. Does this happen frequently? And do you have any insights on like the origin of how we all got to this point of like starting to recognize imposter syndrome when we're really trying to, to mask maybe our inadequacies or pieces of focus where we're not confident? Yeah. The origin question is kind of twofold. It's like, what was the origin of people finally being able to name this body of symptoms? Because the symptoms are painful. They're debilitating. They really have costs. 
associated with them. And we were kind of wandering out there with these suppressed emotions of not good enough or not worthy, not deserving, or my voice doesn't matter. I don't matter. Who would care? Who would care about what I had to say? And so there were some people, I'm not thinking of their names right now, so I don't want to say it incorrectly, in the early 1970s that first came up with a name for this. And they called it the imposter phenomenon, but they had only studied women. So for quite a long time, people thought this was a female phenomenon, that only women experienced this body of symptoms, the feeling like an imposter. But recent studies and not so recent studies have shown that men and women experience this almost equally just differently, just differently. So there's some origins there. But then, you know, Chris, there's also the origin of where did this kind of begin for me, for the individual? Where did that come from? When I feel like an imposter, it still comes up for me, even to this day, I think I've quieted that voice down quite a bit. But mm-hmm. in the very beginning, especially being in something like cybersecurity, that imposter syndrome voice can be very, very loud because there's a lot of information that we might not know, right? We might be hired for a particular experience or things that we've done in the past. But once we arrive in this new place of work, maybe it's even like a social group. We feel like we don't know as much as we should. And that's okay, right? As long as you're in a learning environment. But I do feel like that in some environments, they aren't learning environments and can add to that imposter syndrome feeling. Have you dealt with whether the imposter syndrome is completely internal or even if it's being affected by external or environmental effects? Yeah, definitely external triggers affect the imposter syndrome experience. They affect it. They don't cause it. It's not so much causation as correlation. So imposter really lies within. It's this feeling that goes all the way back to our really early childhood beliefs. When we're like little sponges, we're just pure emotion. And we could be three years old or even younger, two years old or four years old or five years old. And something happens and our mind is wired to find evidence to make us right. We're all like that, right? We're going to look for evidence. Something happens. We're going to look for more evidence. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? We want to be right. So our little minds are looking for evidence. So something happens and I feel like I'm not good enough. And I look around and something else happens. And I say, oh, there it is again. You see, I'm not good enough. And it starts to get weightier. And depending on my personality, if I'm really sensitive, it can be very, very weighty. Or I'm not good, or nobody cares what I have to see. I'm not lovable. You know, someone abandoned me, or someone's been really unloving. It must be my fault. I'm just the person that's not lovable, or my voice doesn't matter. So now we're adults. Now we're adults out in the world, and there are these voices that you talk about. And some people will want to name that voice as the inner critic, but there are actually different voices in our head. The inner critic is usually the loudest, that's the one that's really self critical, right? But there are other voices, the voices of fear, the voices of doubt, the voices of just not good enough. And those are kind of the symphony in our head, the self-talk that swirls around. So now if we have a little bit of that or a lot of that, and we get an external trigger and somebody in the environment tells us or shows us or acts as if we're not good enough, puts us down, maybe it's microaggressions. They don't come out and say it, but we can feel it in the tone of the voice or the way they treated us versus the way they may have treated someone else, right? And 
it amplifies that. So definitely external triggers are powerful. That is so interesting to me to hear the differences of voices in your mind. That's so true. And now that I'm reflecting on my life, especially because my mindset is focused around freedom. And when I don't feel free, whether it's personally, financially, spiritually, or even in my relationships, there's different voices going on. And it's my mindset isn't really in alignment with where I want to go. And then I lose my state of presence. I'm thinking about being somewhere else or being in the future and having things be different. And then maybe at that point, I'm thinking now I'm in the wrong place. I'm not really where I want to be. I would imagine that everyone's origin story is a bit different, though, when it comes to imposter syndrome and their current mindset. What is your origin story with imposter syndrome? How did you first learn about this? And have you ever felt these emotions or experiences with feeling like an imposter? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the way I kind of got the name, the way I understood what all these symptoms were was I was working with manifestation. I was teaching people how to manifest by design, not by default, because we're always manifesting. We're always calling in that which we are thinking about and that's which we are feeling because our emotions can be even more powerful than our thoughts. And I was teaching people that there's this disconnect. And then I got on this audio app. I don't know if you've heard about it, Clubhouse. And everyone was talking about imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. And I said, you know, I'm a gap analyst and I was looking for the cracks in the foundation. I said, that is the term that is the umbrella for this body of symptoms that are creating this misalignment. The reason why we're not able to really do the thing or call it in or call it in congruently. The people I was working with were just getting more of what they already had or the opposite of what they want, or they were manifesting, but it was really haphazard. They weren't really, I don't like to use the word control because I don't believe in control, but they just really weren't able to repeat that. And so I did this deep dive and I opened these rooms and I had hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands probably, yeah, thousands actually, over about a year and a half, they came in and out of my rooms and just shared their pain and their experiences. So that was my origin of working with imposter syndrome. And then as I did the deep dive, I'm also an integrative hypnotherapist. So I had 30 years of business background. I've been an entrepreneur three times. I was a senior executive C-suite for a couple of large billion-dollar companies. But then I also did the deep dive, and I'm a hypnotherapist. I'm an NLP master, all the mindset stuff. And so I was looking inside. What's so interesting is so much gets buried. And I grew up in a really nice household. Like from the outside, everybody would say, oh, you you grew up in the perfect, you know, upper middle class, really nice family. Your parents loved you, blah, blah, blah. And I don't say blah, blah, blah lightly because I think that's a big deal. I was fortunate and I knew it. What I didn't realize is that It's not so much the experiences that happen to us, but the meaning we give them Mm -hmm. at the stage we are. And so when I was very little, I'm an introvert. So it was really hard for me to be with groups. And I always felt awkward. And I always felt like the one that didn't fit in. And then when I was very young, my father, who was just an amazing human being, I mean, really like somebody everybody loved, but he had a big voice, a big temper, And he also had a voice like Pavarotti, but he had a big voice, big temper. And if he got angry, he would 
go take a drive. It was his way of just, I'll just go blow off steam, which is probably a good thing. And so he would do that. He would just go. And as a little girl, I'd hear the door close. I'd hear dad's voice gets raised and you're little. So that's big. And then the door would slam. So I had that noise, the trigger. I'd hear the car rev up and daddy would leave. And I felt abandoned. I didn't realize this until this year, actually, Chris, that I had a fear of abandonment. Mm. And my father never abandoned me. You see, so it wasn't true. None of it was true, but it was the belief I had in my little mind that I was completely unaware of at a conscious level. So I had fear of abandonment. I was an introvert, so I always felt awkward. And then I was very sensitive, so little things would happen. I think I was in, I don't know, maybe the fifth or sixth grade, a fifth grade, I think. A boy asked me to go study on April Fool's Day and then said April Fool's. And so I thought, you know, (laughs) I'm the girl that no guy wants to go out with and they're just going to make fun of me. And it was just painful. And so these become our beliefs. You know, the experience happens, but then the belief starts to form of, and the identity of I'm not good enough or I'm abandoned or they left me. And little kids never blame their parents. Little children blame themselves. And when parents are unloving, little children don't stop loving their parents. They stop loving themselves. So in my case, it wasn't that someone was unloving, but it was just things happened to me. And I, in turn, found myself playing small, or I got pretty good at feeling my fear and doing it anyway, but I I lived with a lot of anxiety. So it wasn't that I wasn't successful. It was that I was successful and I had all these imposter syndrome feelings that went along with it that I thought was just part of it. You're hitting on something that's so important because when we tell these stories to ourselves, we tend to take them as reality. But there are many sides to this story. There's the story that others see. And then there's ultimately the truth, the absolute truth, whatever you might think that might be. But you touched on something just very, very briefly, and I think that it fits in this imposter syndrome discussion so well, and that's the experience you have with NLP, because I feel like imposter syndrome is probably the negative side of NLP, right? Programming ourselves to feel a certain way versus programming ourselves to do something positive, have confidence, be joyous and energetic. What has been your experience with NLP, and do you see imposter syndrome as a negative NLP construct? Well, just in terms of programming, this is a really important discussion. So let me just give you kind of an overarching approach that I use to get past imposter syndrome, because a lot of people think you just have to live with it and you can't get past it. And if you believe that, then that will be your reality because your subconscious mind will believe you. It's non-judgmental. It's non-critical. Whatever you believe, whatever you tell it, it's going to believe you. I can, it believes you. I can't, it believes you. But I believe And I have proven this, that you can get past imposter syndrome, but it takes a holistic approach. Doing the deep dive in, which is the reprogramming, what you were just talking about. And it takes repatterning the brain because we do have the neural connection. So I'll talk about that in a moment. Let's talk about programming. NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming, and it's really the language of the mind. You know, it's a great conversation for techies because we understand programming, right? Oh, okay, I'm going to just create the code. I'm going to create the program, but we know there's a lot of bad programming out there too, right? And Trojan horses and all this (laughs) stuff, right? 
And so that early programming isn't actually programming we're doing. We don't have influence over that. And by the way, I alluded to earlier, I don't believe in control. I absolutely don't believe in control. Now you can believe whatever you want, but I would invite you to consider what would life be like if control was a myth? What would be left? There's this huge void, but really there isn't because what we have is choice and influence. But when we're little, we're not choosing the messages that are coming to us, nor are we cognitively choosing our response because we're emotional beings. We're just all feeling. And so the programming really isn't so much neurolinguistic. Well, it could be, it could be considered that, but it's being done. We're being programmed unbeknownst to us. And so we go along in life, usually pretty blind to that. Our conscious mind is only 10% of our reality, 90% is below the surface, and it becomes the mystery why we self-sabotage. So when we can start to make the unconscious conscious, when we can do the deep dive and go back in and look at that programming and see where the code was bad, and then change that, you have to really go in to almost do the deep dive to when you're young and change it there, not at the conscious level, the 10%, not at the adult level. My mind, Cheryl Ann Jeanette at my age, is going to understand that that wasn't abandonment. But little Cheryl at four, five, six years old, she didn't understand that. We had to go in and meet little Cheryl, and we had the conversation because she was all emotion, and then she understood, and she was able to do the cognitive reframing. I don't know if you're familiar with Cognitive reframing? No. Cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive reframing is one of the most potent things you can do. If you think about a picture, if you took a picture and you put a different frame on it, it looks different, doesn't it? When you pick out a great frame for a not so great picture, you can really improve that picture. Vice versa, you can take a great image and put a terrible frame on it. It does nothing for it. So we reframe our thoughts reframe the meaning, the story, which is really the feeling. Think about emotion as we feel emotion in our body. It's something that we experience in our body. You feel fear, you know what that feels like in your body. You feel angry, you know what that feels like in your body. You feel happy, you know what that emotion feels like in your body. The feeling is the narrative you give that emotion. It's the story. So we change the story and then the emotion changes. We change the thought. So those all feed our thoughts. We change our thought about that and it changes. So now I've reframed that for my young self, my inner child, which I happen to think of as children because I think we're different at different ages and stages. But I go back in and I reframe that and then it bubbles all the way up. It's almost like it works back up through your timeline and now I don't have those feelings anymore. I've been able to dissolve them, transmute, transform them. And it's very lightning, like enlightening, but also lightning. Like my clients will say things like, where's that heaviness? I used to feel like there was this huge weight in the pit of my stomach and it's gone. When is it going to come back? And it doesn't, it doesn't come back because we express those emotions. We cognitively reframe the experience. We changed the story around it and it's gone. It's gone at the 
origin, kind of going back to your word, if that makes sense. So what you can do with neuro-linguistic programming, you don't have to do, I actually often combine, if someone's interested in hypnotherapy, I like to do NLP while people are in hypnotherapy, but some people are not sure about hypnotherapy. You can use neuro-linguistic programming to do that reprogramming. Now we can go in and start to find these things and it's really powerful, but you always want to be with a good guide, somebody that you can trust that's really just a guide, not manipulative. Some of these things can be used for manipulation, but with a really good guide, somebody with high integrity, it can be one of two, actually those two, and especially together, of the most healing modalities and very, very rapid. The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix. Analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting Uptix.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S dot com. Thank you, Uptix, for sponsoring this episode. This reminds me of all of the things that could surface as you're trying to change yourself, maybe trying to change your mind, even your life, your habits, is all of these thoughts, whether they're positive or negative, and you have to reprogram your mind as you were describing. And when you're first learning how to program, especially in the technology field, you're not really that good at it. You might write your first program and it has one line of code and it does one thing, but it's not quite helpful for you yet. And I would imagine it would be the same for something like NLP, where you start with one small task or one small element of NLP, and then you move and you work your way to start programming more and more of your mind. Tell us a a bit of a story about, or even a walkthrough of what are the steps of programming your mind? How do you start if you're someone that doesn't have access to an NLP practitioner like yourself? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting when you were talking about coding, and I'm not a coder other than for the mind, but I've worked with large teams in my marketing company, I did a lot of that. Have you ever had the experience of, you know, you'll have a lot of complex code, but you'll change one line of code and it is just (laughs) magical. Like it either destroys everything or it's just like all of a sudden it all comes together, right? In the programming world, it's typically like a comma or a semicolon, something very small (laughs) that just wrecks your entire program. Right. Or finally makes it work. Like th- yes. that was the thing, right? <laughs> let's let's think positive here, glass exactly. apple. But but right, you know, it's like the big shift. If you just move the rudder a tiny bit, you're going to end up in a completely different country, right? So for somebody that is, if you have access to a guide and you're open to hypnotherapy, I think that's the most rapid way because you have, it's like, it's kind of like if you're climbing Everest, Would you do the climbing? Yes. Would you carry your own pack? Yes. Would you carry your own oxygen? Sure. Of course you would. But would you go without a Sherpa? Probably not. 
And even without a group, sometimes just having others, but certainly not without a Sherpa. So that's the way it is. So if you have access to somebody that can really do this, it's actually much faster because you can, as someone can help, like with my clients, I can go right down and the thing that's been evasive for years and years and sometimes decades, we can find in a 30 to 60 minute session is like, boom, that comma or that little piece of code. But if you're doing this yourself, the thing that you want to remember is first and foremost, and this is hard for people that are thinkers and overthinkers, and I would imagine people that are high performing in the technology fields, especially if you're entrepreneurs, your mind is probably going nonstop all the time, working out problems, ruminating about things. The most important thing is first do some deep, deep breathing, low and slow, like you're pulling it into deep into your belly or the base of your spine, holding it, letting it go. Get yourself into your parasympathetic nervous system because when you're going, 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 you tend to be in fight or flight. So it's really important that the logical mind can communicate with the emotional brain. And then you put something in your mind that you're grateful for or something that you feel positive about, something that makes you happy. And you just focus on that and you get very present. Get very present, meaning notice something you see, something you're touching, something you feel, touch something, feel it, get your sense of smell on board, get very, very present in the moment. And then just feel yourself drop into your heart. Feel yourself drop into your heart. It's only an 18-inch journey, but it's something we generally don't do very often. Get out of our head and into your heart. And that, just slowing down, slowing your mind, and just find yourself in a place, a place that is your special place where you, you know, it can be inside, outside. It can be a place you know, a place you don't know, real or imagined. Find a place that feels really safe, and you know you know that no matter what you're okay and then just start to go down don't go into any trauma just tell yourself before that you're not going to revisit trauma but almost like an observer go back through your past like you're looking down and you're your own coach and you're just kind of going back down through your own life and revisit things and coach yourself like an observer just go back in like you're repairing little code See yourself if you were bullied at 10 years old or if you were the bully at 12 years old, but you know, hurt people hurt. Give yourself forgiveness. Give the other people forgiveness. Help yourself see the difference, the real story versus the interpretation at that age. Listen to yourself if nobody listened to you. It's easier to do with somebody else. And sometimes it's scary for somebody to do this by themselves. It's like, ooh, I'm going to do everything I can to distract myself, to keep super busy. I'll play games. I'll go do every useless thing I can do rather than having to go inside because those emotions have been repressed for so long. It can feel like you're opening up Pandora's box, but the truth is emotions are energy in motion. And if you do not express them in a healthy way, they will come out one way or another. They come out as self-sabotage. They come out as disease. Most diseases, I believe, are from these suppressed emotions, if not all. So it's really powerful, but it doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be, it's a little uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to be super uncomfortable. And it's very liberating. You used the word freedom earlier. 
And it is so incredibly liberating. Mm. I love everything that you're saying. I I went through some coaching training uh, a little while back. And one of the things that they taught us is that we have all these tools and ideas, thoughts and advice internal to us. And a lot of times we don't even realize it because we can't see the forest from the trees. And so we find it easier to give other people advice Mm -hmm. than to give ourselves advice. That little exercise of being your own coach, thinking completely detached about your situation and being able to look at it for what it is and coach yourself through those moments, I think is one of the most powerful tools that anyone can have in their toolkit to push through uncertainty, to push through self-doubt, and even imposter syndrome. For anyone that's really dealing with imposter syndrome now, maybe they they feel like they're in a job where they're going to be fired any moment. Is there anything that you would want to tell that person as they have those feelings of uncertainty and really to understand the power that's within? Yeah. So, And by the way, this happens a lot for people, even when there's no evidence. Now, if there's really evidence, that's one thing, but imposter syndrome, it's likely that there's no evidence that you're going to be fired at any moment. We just feel like we are. We always feel like we're not good enough. And so the first thing to do is do that deep breathing. And then as you go into your heart and into your observer role, ask yourself, is this real? Where is this coming from? And then just tell yourself a different story. You know what? I'm good. I'm good. Everything will work out. It's unlikely I'm going to be fired. I think that's just a pattern that I've had for a long time. So I'm going to assume the best. I choose because one thing you always have is choice. You may not have control, but you always have choice. You get to choose what thought you put in your mind and where you have the most influence is always over yourself. So just use that. It's kind of like you get that question in the moment. This is happening in the moment. What do you do right now when it's happening? I'd like you to consider stepping back for a moment so that you can repattern your mind, not just reprogram, but repattern your mind. So when these things, the self-doubt comes up in the moment, your mind already knows where to go. You've already created new neural pathways. I talk a lot about this in my book. It's sort of a journey from awareness to insight to alignment to integration. And there are 20 exercises, actually more throughout the book. But it's a place where you can kind of start to understand how the reprogramming and the repatterning all comes together, if that makes sense. That makes absolute perfect sense. And I think this is a great segue for anyone to really dive into the psychology and the mindfulness that you're talking about now. For the folks out there that want to stay up to date with you, get your book and stay up to date with all the incredible things that you're putting out there into the world. What are the best ways for people to do that? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find if you know how to spell my name. It's just Cheryl with an S and Anjanette, A-N-J-A-N-E-T-T-E. The book is called The Imposter Lies Within, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I think a few other places. It just came out May 11th of this year, so it's kind of being picked up more and more and more. It did actually become a bestseller pretty quickly, which was nice. congrats. That was fun. I wouldn't have been able to say that when I was in the throes of imposter syndrome, celebrating my wins. So I'm (laughs) proud of myself for saying that. And yeah, so Cheryl and Jeanette, you can reach me by email, hello at CherylAnnJeanette.com, my website, 
all the social medias in my name. So yeah. Great. Celebrate the wins. Take a few deep <laughs> breaths. Program the mind. Cheryl, thank you so much. We'll be sure to drop all of your information and the link to your book in the show notes for everyone to check out. Really appreciate the time and great conversation. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.